Good morning. Please stand for the reading of God's word from Deuteronomy 7, 6 through 8. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples, but it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers, that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. This is the word of God for the people of God. God. You may be seated. the church as the gathered people of God, which is what the word church really means, is to be about those things, to be a sort of living sacrament for one another and for the world, to be be that which is chosen, that which is blessed, that which is broken, and that which is given. And we're going to work through this picture of these four words together over these coming uh, weeks and months, two weeks at a time, to help us understand and prayerfully live into the life of the church. Now, last week we started looking at what does it mean to be chosen? What is it actually about? And we said that looking through Romans 8, 28 through 30, that, that what that has to say about God is that to be chosen is to be seen by him as special, precious, unique. And aside from that, that we are not just seen that way at a certain point of time once we get to a certain level of maturity, but we're seen by that way as God from his point of view from eternity. That we are always chosen in him. And today we're going to continue with our second week of looking at chosenness by focusing on Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 6 through 8, to look if we talked about when God chose us and what it means to be chosen. Today we're focusing on why? Why would God choose you? On what basis? I want to talk about three things. Uh, a negative reason why God chooses us, verses 7 through 8. A positive reason, verses, I'm sorry, just verse 8. And then what do we do with our chosenness, verse 6. So a negative reason why God chooses, a positive reason, and then what we do with our chosenness. Before we get into these things, would you bow your heads and pray with me as we open up God's word together. Father, I set these hearts, my heart, our hearts before you now. You know our weeks. You know what it's been like to get us just to this moment, this day. You know where we are in our hearts as we sit here right now. Some of us are deeply sad. Some of us are exceedingly joyful. Some of us are confused and uncertain. God, we sit here before you waiting for you, waiting for the God who is holy, holy, holy to help the church that he has called to be holy. And yet, God, we acknowledge that we do not feel that way. So often we don't understand ourselves to be chosen. We don't have the sense that we really are chosen, God. And so would you meet us in this this morning by the power of your word that we might know in our bones that just by grace, without any other way, we are chosen. And that we are called in that 
to be a people of chosenness who goes out to others to invite them to come in on that very same means. We pray that you would open our hearts to these things this morning. Would you be here in our time together? Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, feel free to have those open. If you don't, there should be one in the pew in front of you, or feel free to use an app on your phone. We'll go back through uh, this brief text a little bit together this morning, uh, starting with a negative reason that God chooses us here in verses 7 and 8. One commentator, Peter Craigie, uh, says the chosenness of God's people shows up in this passage in both negative and positive ways. Uh, We'll talk about both, but we're going to start here with the negative. As we start to look, that becomes more apparent. He says, negatively, God's people were not, clarify, were not chosen because they were the biggest, because they were the best, the strongest, the most powerful. Verse 7 says, quote, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you for you were the fewest of all peoples. So God chose his people not because they were the big, shiny object, right? They weren't the star team that you would expect. They didn't have maybe the prestige of the Patriots under Tom Brady, right? They weren't the obvious team to pick. They were perhaps the New York Jets, the Cleveland Browns, right? A a team that seems the fewest, the smallest, the least, God picked them not when they were having a winning record, but when they had a losing record, when they were little, when they were needy, when they were vulnerable. That's when God chose them. He chose them not because they were big and strong. He chose them because they were little, not because they had something to offer, but because they didn't. And we might understand that better if we look a little bit more closely at when the text is trying to show us that God chose them this way, chose them apart from them being big and strong. Uh, We talked about last week that that when God says he chose his people, that that from God's perspective happens outside of time. That time is a creation of God, and God exists outside of that creation the same way a builder exists outside of a house that she or he has built. So from all eternity, from God's perspective, he has chosen his people. But in time, from our perspective, when does God call us his own? When is God saying here that he called his people his own as as the fewest, when they were the smallest? Because it wasn't in this moment. Deuteronomy is being written on the eve of God's people about to go into the promised land. They had come out of slavery in Egypt, and they were large at this time, right? So large that they had become of concern to Egypt 400 years prior and had been subjected because of how great and expansive they have gotten. So it couldn't be at this moment. God's not talking to them right now to say, at this moment when you are large, yes, you were slaves. Even before then, I chose you. So what's he talking about? Well, verse 8 clues us into this a little, and it says that they were chosen because the Lord is keeping the oath he swore to your fathers, that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery. Those, those same descriptors and details about God taking an oath to one of their forefathers and promising to rescue them from slavery come up with Abraham if you go all the way back to Genesis 15. If you were to flip back there, we won't do that for time, but you could flip back there. God makes a covenant with Abraham at that time. He takes an oath. He makes a particular and special promise to make him who was so small. At this time, it was just Abraham 
and his wife Sarah. Two people. That's it. He promises to this person who is so small that he would make him, he says, look into the stars and you will see a people come from you more numerous than that. That this one family would become so great. But he also tells him in verses 13 and 14 of chapter 15, I'm sorry, chapter 15 in Genesis, your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be slaves there and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve and afterward they shall come out. It seems that what God's talking about here in Deuteronomy is the covenant that he made, the promises that he made to Abraham. He's saying he chose them as smallest when it was just two people. And that is truly the smallest people group you can have. Outside of that, it's just one person. That's not a people group. This was the smallest that they could be. That's when God chose them, when they were just one man and one woman, when they were not just small, but the book of Hebrews says that Abraham at that time was as good as dead. They had no offspring, they were advanced in years, they were the smallest, they were unable to be great, and God had to override their natural inability to be great in order to make them this numerous people. It wasn't because he saw something and said, you know what, when I talk to Abraham, things are going to click, he's going to get it, and boom, they're going to be on their way. Now Abraham knew, Scripture knew, God knows that Abraham was not able in and of himself. He was not mighty on his own physical account. God had to overcome the inability in him and Sarah to make them have this promise come true. And that means that God chose his people when they are effectively dead. When they were, we could say, maybe the runts of the litter. They were the smallest They had the least likely chance of survival. They had the least power. They had the least influence. The smallest amount that they could give. I want you to see that when God chooses you, He doesn't do it because He knows that someday you'll become something great. Or that because right now he's recognizing you that you've achieved this spiritual status, that you're a smart person, that you're a mature person, that you're a strong person. God chose Abraham knowing he would not be great. Chose his people that would come after Abraham knowing they would be much worse. And yet knowing what they would be like, knowing that they were not strong, that they were not able in and of themselves, God set his affection on them in that time, at that moment, on the littlest, the weakest, the smallest, and most vulnerable, the most fragile, the least, we might say, deserving of a chance. That was who God set his affection on. That's who he took vows to care for. God chose the outsider, the misfit, to belong to him, our text says, as a treasured possession. Can you imagine picking the thing that seems least likely to help you as your most treasured possession? Right, sometimes our young ones have little stuffed animals that go with them everywhere. These are wonderful little things that help them. Imagine the thing that feels spiky and rough and hard as your little best friend that you take everywhere with you. That's not what we do, right? That's essentially what God is doing here, is taking the rough, unhelpful, difficult thing with him. 
That's who he's committing to. He doesn't choose us because we are great. He doesn't choose us because we are the obvious candidate. It is not about being good. If you are not a Christian and you don't know that, I want to say that very clearly. Being a Christian, being someone that God would choose, is not about you being good enough for him to choose you. I want to relieve you of that. Christians, I want to relieve you of that. It is not about you being good enough for him to choose you. Because then it could never be about him choosing you. It would always be this unachievable dream. God chooses you just because you need him. Because you are small and weak and vulnerable. And we don't like that feeling if we're honest. We don't like to acknowledge that that's where we are. But when you are in those dark hours, when you reach that place of brokenness in your life, when everything is falling apart, when your dreams are not going the way that you plan, when you can't control things, when people are doing things to you that you don't like, that is the time when you recognize, I really do want God to pick me, not because I am great, but just because he decided to pick me. And I know that this idea of God choosing, of the concept of election, is something that can be a struggle, that can be foreign to us. I didn't grow up with it. It's still new to me, and we may be struggling thinking, this isn't fair. And I want to step back from that just a minute to say, you may be right. It's not fair. It's actually generous. We think God is just interested in being fair. God is interested in being generous. Who is God picking here? Is he picking the all-star? Is he picking the strong people? Is he picking the dominant people? Is he picking the wealthy? Is he picking the young and the, the attractive? He's picking the weak and the poor and the outsider. It's not fair. It's generous. It's gentle. It pays attention to the least of these. It sees those that others pass by. It doesn't pass by the broken down, the self-injured, the dysfunctional, the messy, the incapable, the uninformed, the stubborn. That is who God is looking for. That is who God is looking for. That's who the church is supposed to be filled with, not the polished, reserved, well-spoken, well thought of. The church is supposed to be messy. If church is messy here, we are getting closer to being the people of God and not farther from being the people of God. Amen? This is a place where we are, we are meant to be the least of these, where the least of these are called in. You're right. God's choosing is not fair, perhaps, from our perspective, but it isn't meant to be from our perspective. It's meant to be generous, something more, because God, again, does not choose us because we deserve it, because we're great. And this is what the cross shows us much, much more definitively, that God chooses us, takes us in as his own, not because we were strong. The cross was not about Jesus saying, these people I recognize for their achievements. These people I recognize for how much they have obeyed me. These people I recognize for how much they have loved me. No, Jesus goes to the cross because we were desperately weak, dead even in our sins, and we needed him to find us, pick us up, and carry us home. 
If you need to be reminded, not just from Abraham and what God says in Deuteronomy here, but from Jesus himself, look at Jesus on the cross to see on what basis does God choose you. It is not a choosing you because you are strong. It is a choosing you specifically because you cannot do it. And you were never meant to do it on your own. The sin that Jesus deals with for us on the cross tells us that God chooses his people because we are still like Abraham, small, helpless, and without a future on our own. But with God's choosing, with his gracious, generous choice, with the love that he lavishes on us, we come out from that. Jesus knew specifically that we needed him. And he chose to be generous to us there when we, like Abraham, were as good as dead. It's not because you were great. So why, maybe positively, if that's the negative, does God choose anyone? Verse 8, the positive reason says that God chose his people is because he loves us and is keeping his promises. His promises to people, again, like Abraham, the weak, the small, the helpless. The church is chosen positively, again, not because of something we do, but because God loves us and made promises to love us. Even knowing that we would need continual help. God didn't make this promise and make this plan and then go, okay, all right, not working out. Um, They're not doing what I thought. They're much worse than I thought. I've got to change everything, right? That's not how God works, okay? This was not an accident. This is on purpose. God chose to love us this way, chose to make promises and commitments knowing that we would need continual help. It means we can say God's people are chosen exclusively by his love and promises, because he loves and makes promises to the small and the hopeless. That is why God chooses. And if we think about what those things mean, what does it mean to be chosen by love and promises? What's a picture of that? It's another way of saying that God is relating to us as if we were his spouse, as if we were married to him. Because what is marriage if not a product of love and promises? That's a picture of marriage. And when God says he chooses his people because of love and promises, he is telling you that effectively he is treating the church like his spouse. He's saying that he loves you like that, that he is committed to you for better or for worse richer or poorer, in sickness and health. That's the way that God is committing to his church, except not till death do we part, but even after death there is no parting with God, that he doesn't walk away from you at the end, that in every season, in every circumstance, he is committed to you. He is the best version, the greatest picture of marriage, that there is no failing in his commitment to you, that he is intimate with you like that, that he is present with you like that, that he is committed to never leaving or forsaking you like that. That is the picture that he is communicating to us here when he is saying that he is chosen you by love and promises. 
And if we really stop and think about that for a minute, that is amazing. Find any other religion, any other philosophy or way of life that says God chooses you like that, that he wants that kind of relationship with you, that there is something that special about humanity and being chosen by God where it would be fitting to actually be the spouse of God eternal. Can we really even begin to fathom what it means for the church to be the spouse of God, the bride of Christ, as Scripture would say? Can we even fathom what it means? Really think about that. Can I even understand what it means that God would want to choose me as his spouse? Can we grasp what that means to always be loved by him like that, always belong to him, always be protected by him, always be seen and understood by him. Think about that for a second. That's what God is saying he is committed to loving you like, that his choosing is about. When he is choosing you, it's like that. It's to that extent. God sees you, everyone who calls on him by faith, everyone who is small and weak, everyone who knows that this thing of me doing it by myself is just not working. That's who he chooses as his spouse. Scripture wants to see, wants you to see that why God chooses you is because of love and promises. So when you have a bad week this week, when you lose it on a friend, on a coworker, over an email, you don't send that email, but quietly the email was rage, right? When, when you lose it at some point this week, remember that God does not choose you because you performed. He chooses you based solely on love and promises. And that, for the runts of the litter, for the weak and the small. That's amazing. So if that's the, the positive side of why God chooses us, because of his love and promises for the runts of the litter, what should we then do with that chosenness? To get to our third point, uh, as the church we are, according to verse 6, to claim it. We're to lean into a life lived as the highly treasured possession what our text is getting at there is something that's infinitely valuable the most precious thing you could have that's what God's saying he has called his people out as this most infinitely valuable thing set apart as special that's what holy means to be his his set aside I only treat this as special his unique people we are to claim that to live into it to avail ourselves of all the, all the privileges and blessings that come along with that, to be those who are chosen by God, by grace, as special. We are to just be who we are. But I know I struggle, and I would guess you struggle as well, to be comfortable with that. It feels uncomfortable to consider myself the treasured special possession of God, either out of fear that it can't really be true because it must, at the end of the day, really be about performing, and I really haven't performed that well, 
It must be about being strong and great and having it all together. And that's not me. I'm weak. I'm small. I'm forgetful. I'm fragile. I don't have all the right answers. Even though that's exactly who we said God is looking for. Or maybe, and we'll spend a minute thinking about this, we're uncomfortable with it because we think it's prideful. It's hurtful. Uh, it's exclusive. It's narrow-minded to say that I'm chosen, to really embrace that. We think chosenness is only exclusive. It's only separating, only setting apart. We don't see that it is also and innately actually inviting in. It has this component to it. Henry Nouwen helps us understand this. He says, in this world, to be chosen simply means to be set apart in contrast to others. But to be chosen as the beloved of God is something radically different. Instead of excluding others, it includes others. Instead of rejecting others as less valuable, it accepts others in their own uniqueness. Now he says, granted, this is, this is impossibly difficult for us to grasp, and maybe we never grasp it in our whole lives, but what he's trying to get at is that, that our world teaches us to say, I am chosen, you are not sad for you. Or you are chosen, I am not sad for me. But the invitation of God and of the gospel, as now and explains, is to say, I am chosen by grace, just by grace, which means you can be chosen too. Please, Come in, pull up a chair. There is room for you here. We'd love to have you here. The world says effectively there are only so many Taylor Swift tickets available. And when the system crashes, I'm sorry. You're not gonna be there. No more seats, no more room. But in the gospel to be chosen means there is a seat at the table for anyone who would come in at any time. The table is always longer than you think it is. There are always more chairs than you think there are. It is not about a closing off. It is about a holding as special while also welcoming in. Claiming an identity as God's treasured possession does not mean that others are unwelcome. It does not mean that. If that's how we're using our chosenness, we are misusing our chosenness. It is not about sitting in here, closing the doors and thinking how wonderful it is to be us, right? Jesus talks about those two people who went into the temple. He gives this picture of someone who was before God saying, God, thank you. I'm not like that guy. He is a huge screw up. Thank you that you have made me different, right? That's not what chosenness is about. The other man who was a sinner, it says, just beat on his chest. Say, God, have mercy on me. Right, to use our chosenness to say thank you for making me so much better is to not understand on what basis, on when God chose us. Our chosenness is meant to be something that changes us to see others differently too. It's actually a key to the way that we are meant to draw others in. And now one helps us understand this. He says, when we claim and constantly reclaim the truth of being the chosen ones, we soon discover within ourselves a deep desire to reveal to others their own chosenness. He says, instead of making us feel that we are better, more precious, or valuable than others, our awareness of being chosen opens our eyes to the chosenness of others. That, he says, is the great joy of being chosen, the discovery of others being chosen too. 
That is the joy of being chosen. Not that it's insular, but that it turns us out. In other words, it, it changes the way we see it. It makes us, being chosen makes us suddenly aware that there is so much chosenness around you. And that you, as being chosen, have the unique opportunity to call out the chosenness in others. To bring it into the light. Chosenness, chosenness both, both calls you and sends you out, searching for where you might see it hiding in others. It changes the way you look at others because it sees yourself as someone that, that someone else recognized that someone else found as special and holy and treasured. Being seen that way makes you operate differently. It makes you see others in that way. It flows out of you. It draws us to wonder who else might have chosenness in them. And in fact, it's the only thing that frees you up to look at others that way, to not just have this competitive spirit. Being chosen by God, by grace, is the only thing that will let us set down the, but if they're chosen, then I'm not chosen. Or if I'm chosen, then they're not chosen. Or can, can I really lean in in this way if I'm not so sure that I'm accepted? If I'm not so sure that I'm worthy and valuable, can I, can I take that step? Do I have that energy? Being chosen by God, by grace forever as his spouse is the only thing now and helps us see that actually gives us the strength and the energy to go out to others and invite them in to also be chosen. Uh, he gives an example of this by telling a story from the, the community that he worked in for many years for mentally and physically handicapped people. He talks about a friend of his named Helen. He says, Helen was one of the handicapped members of our community. When she came a few years ago, I felt quite distant from her, even a bit afraid. She lived in a little world of her own, only uttering distracting noises and never making any personal contact. But as we came to know her better and trusted that she too has a unique gift to offer, he's recognizing chosenness in her. She gradually came out of her isolation, started to smile at us and became a great source of joy to the whole community. I'm reflecting back about this story, he says, I now realize that I had to be in touch with my own goodness, my own chosenness, to discover the unique chosenness of Helen. As long as my self-doubts and fears guided me, he says, I couldn't create the space for Helen to reveal to me her beauty. But once I claimed my own chosenness, I could be with Helen as a person who had much, very much, to offer. Do you see what he's talking about? It was only when he knew that he is accepted and if someone else doesn't accept him, that's okay because that's not the basis for his love and affirmation. He has a basis, a well to draw on of love and affirmation that is not based on the world's love. The world's love will always be conditional. But God says his love is unconditional. It's that unconditional love that lets you move out and say conditions will not stop me from looking to love others. Knowing that I am chosen by God, by grace, is what lets me go out, move out towards others to see the chosenness in them even when they don't reciprocate, even when they don't choose me back. It's the only thing that lets me set down my competitiveness, my insecurity to move towards others and to seek the chosenness in them. 
It's what is meant to drive inclusivity, not exclusivity, not closing our doors to others. It's what drives us to care for and value others. And we fear that choosing is too exclusive, but now one says it's the only thing that will really let you lean into including every kind of person, including the least of these, the last to be picked for the team, the least likely to succeed, the least seemingly worthy of being called in. Scripture is full of those people. This is the chosenness of God, the chosenness that we need, that our world needs. And so I want to invite you to live into that chosenness this week by doing two things, by, by claiming it as a runt and by adding a seat. I want to invite you to claim this chosenness of God as a runt, as the smallest, as the weakest. It's easy to want to claim chosenness because you felt like you had a good week, because you felt like you did things well, because things are going well for you, but the text calls you to claim it, yes, but to claim it as little, small, and vulnerable. Not because you did something great, I want to challenge you to claim it for yourself this week on that basis. I want to challenge you to do something tangible because we are embodied beings. We are not just brains on a stick. Sometimes doing something physical helps us. I want to challenge you to do this in a tangible way this week. I want you to say to yourself in some way, I am chosen. If you want to write it down 10 times a day, each day this week, do that. Do it 20 times. Do it 50 times. Do it until it feels different. Until you somehow feel like maybe this is really true. Paint it. Draw it. Sculpt it. Sing it. Perform it. Get it into your bones in some way. Claim it like it's really yours, like you would if you had a winning lottery ticket, right? Run out, bang down the door and say, this is mine. Pay me my money right? Claim the chosenness of God in that way for yourself this week. Do it today, if only for the first time. Claim that God would make you even as small and weak, maybe even as untimely as someone who who has been around the things of God for a while or vacant from them for a while, that even as someone who could be far off as old as Abraham could be chosen now by grace. Receive that even for the first time today, that you, even you, would be the treasured possession of God because you are exactly who he is looking for. And secondly, I want to encourage you to not just claim it for yourself, but to add a seat. Let your chosenness make you ask, who do I hope to see at this table, in this house? Or maybe ask, by inverse, who am I overlooking that could use a chair, right? Who feels most comfortable? Maybe that's who I want in, but who's uncomfortable? Who might God be calling me to make space for here? How could I bring out a chair for them at CTK? In my community group, if I'm part of a community group, in my friend group, in my, in my workplace, how could I bring out a chair for someone in the house of God? What changes might I need to make? What space might we need to make as a community? What changes might we need to make in in our service on Sundays? In our community groups? 
in our, in our activities, in our way of life, in the way we use our building, our time, our resources? What changes might we need to make to add a seat for others here? To not presume that, that the table is set in a way that will right now allow someone else to come in. What changes might we, might we need to make and what, what grace do we need from God to actually do that? How might he be offering us more in that and not less? We're afraid that if, if we give something up, we make changes, we're losing. No, remember the chosenness is what leads you out into others to see their chosenness and that together we have something more through seeing, just like Henry saw something in Helen, that we see something more in one another and we have something more beautiful together. How might we add a seat here? Let's be a people that are hungry to add space for others because of the space that God has made for us in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. We'd like to leave a little time for you to respond in prayer about the things that we just discussed, maybe thanking God for choosing the small and the weak, the stubborn, the unlikely, or just confessing the ways that, you know, I really haven't had much desire to see other people be his treasured possession. We're asking him to help you claim your own chosenness and, and to seek in others. Let's pray for a moment. God, we ask that you would hear these prayers, that you, by your grace, would answer, and that you would show us your great love. In your Son's name and by your Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen.